0: as you saw in some of those greetings at the beginning of
1: the service in some places we encourage the resurrection to be punctuated with a bit of humor even silliness why because humor and the telling of jokes are actually a part of the tradition it happened like this hundreds of years ago an unknown monk let's call him bob bob the monk was pondering the events of holy week and the somber nature of monday thursday and good friday jesus betrayal arrest and crucifixion in silent Saturday, as Jesus' body lay still and dead and cold in the tomb. And then the startling, surprising events of Easter morning. We hinted at some of this in the children's moment earlier. As Bob was pondering this story, sitting in silent contemplation with his fellow monks, he realized something profound. The story of Holy Week has a surprise ending. This struck him as funny, and he began to laugh. And Bob's sudden laughter surprised and started his, startled his, his fellow monks who were in the midst of their silent contemplation. Don't you get it, he asked excitedly. It was a joke, a fantastic joke. It was the best joke in all of history. On Good Friday, when Jesus died on the cross, Satan thought he'd won, but God had the last laugh on Easter morning when he raised Jesus from the dead. (laughs) The monks referred to this as the Easter laugh. And so I have chosen to add a laugh track this morning to sweeten the sermon a bit in celebration of this joke. Adding laugh tracks has worked great for sitcoms for decades, and lately, it's working okay for Jimmy Fallon, so I thought I'd give it a try. <laughs> and thus began the tradition, which is sadly a bit lost on us these days, of setting aside the day after Easter as a day for telling jokes, sometime known as, uh, known as Bright Monday. We, we tell jokes, we, we throw parties, we laugh. Today, friends, Easter is an amazing day, a surprising day, a day meant for joy and laughter. My Episcopalian friends celebrate by serving champagne and chocolate after their Easter services. We don't have that for you this morning, but hey, you're you're at home watching this. You're free to eat whatever you want, even now in the middle of the sermon. It's time for joy and celebration, and yes, laughter. To that end, I heard recently that comedian John Oliver stated that it was not likely that we would all be back in church to celebrate Easter together. However, he added, it would be appropriate for us all to get out and come together on Easter, the day on which Jesus was supposed to stay inside, but didn't. (laughs) You'll find some ideas in our Bible app live event on how you can celebrate this Easter laugh in the coming weeks. Speaking of laughing and laugh tracks, why not add a response to our Easter greetings as well? I'm used to a give and take, a back and forth, and I don't get that in this style of preaching a sermon. So as we began this morning with a call and response, that same call and response will pop up a few times in the sermon. And I want you to respond. So whenever I say Christ is risen, you say he is risen indeed with enthusiasm. Got it? Let's try it. Christ is risen.
0: is risen indeed. One more time.
1: Christ is risen.
0: is risen indeed.
1: One of the most influential thinkers of the late 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche, once wrote, quote, God is dead. He didn't mean that there once was a God who had died. He meant that the idea of God no longer held sway over human society because science and philosophy had had rendered him unnecessary, useless. In the larger quotation from which that original phrase comes, Nietzsche says God is dead, but considering the state the species man is in, there will perhaps be caves for ages yet in which his shadow will be shown. Now, I suppose, in Nietzsche's mind at least, we live in a cave, and what we do this Easter morning and every Sunday morning is a bit of the showing of God's shadow on the wall of the cave. God is dead, but we continue to spread the superstition. Where others look and see, look at, uh, look at shapes and shadows, we, we see the image of God. Where others see a silly holiday that has little meaning beyond colored eggs and fuzzy bunnies and chocolate, we see Jesus resurrected from the tomb where others honor the coming of spring and some vague reference for new life in nature we celebrate abundant life eternal we cry out with our sisters and brothers in the faith around the world and throughout history this morning christ is risen he is risen and that is our good news statement for this week and always christ is risen He's We can say this, we can laugh at this, of course, because we know where the story goes after Jesus' crucifixion, but no one else who lived through it had any idea at the time. We see this in the fact that on the third day after Jesus' death, some women go to the tomb. Mark 16, verses 1 through 3. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb. They are going to anoint Jesus' body for burial, even though he has already been buried. There wasn't time to do so before they laid him in the tomb because the Sabbath was arriving at nightfall on Good Friday when no work could be done by faithful Jewish people according to the Jewish law. The fact that they were taking the spices to anoint Jesus' body tells us that they expected him to be dead, not risen. What they were doing was the equivalent, perhaps, of, uh, of what we do when we put flowers on the grave today. The idea of Jesus' resurrection was as unbelievable and foreign to these women as it is to many of us today. And yet, such an idea, bold and fanciful and dramatic as it may be, such an idea is at the very heart of the Christian faith. The women go to the tomb, wondering who will roll away the stone from the entrance, but they encounter a surprise, verse 4. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. What do we expect? What do we expect to find when we arrive at the tomb? What do we expect when we go to church on any given Sunday or when we show up online for this morning service? Do we expect to encounter a tomb that is sealed up with the body still inside, or do we truly expect something else? Something better, something joyful. My prayer is that we would all leave this place surprised in a new way today, joyful and full of life, full of laughter, for the glory of God, for our own sakes, and for the good of our neighbors. Verse 5. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who is crucified, he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. I saw something I had not noticed before in this passage, and I love it when that happens. The word of God continues to speak to us over and over our entire lives. Listen again to what this man in white, likely an angel, tells these women in verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The disciples were to return to Galilee where it all started, where the first disciples originally said yes to Jesus' call to follow him. Over the past few days, they have deserted him in one way or another, but now, now that he has been resurrected, now that everything he's ever said has new weight, new power, new authority, new meaning, now they get a chance to start over, to renew their commitment to him as his followers, just as they did at the beginning in Galilee. And again, the angel says to the women to go and tell his disciples and Peter. Why set Peter apart like that? Likely because Peter has already set himself apart. He had denied even knowing Jesus back in chapter 14, three times. The angel makes the point of saying yes, and make sure you go and tell Peter this too, for he too needs the chance to recommit himself to following Jesus, perhaps more than the rest of you. Beautiful. Wherever we are in our relationships with Jesus, belief, victory, unbelief, rebellion, or complacency, the angel says to us all, this opportunity for renewed relationship with Jesus is for you too. Whatever you have done, wherever you have been, however far you may have fallen. And then we get to this strange sentence in verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. There are more than 5,800 fragments or complete manuscripts of the Greek New Testament to say nothing of the thousands that are in Latin or other ancient languages. In the oldest of those Greek manuscripts, as some of you may know, Mark's gospel stops here at verse eight, which seems a little strange. There is a resurrection in that ending, but there is no appearance of the risen Jesus to anyone. So the theory goes that this omission of an appearance of Jesus bothered others. So someone must have added verses nine through 20 later, and the evidence suggests that they are correct. Now that doesn't mean that these verses aren't true. It just means that someone along the way decided that more of the story needed to be told. Scholars Ben Witherington and N.T. Wright both believe that Mark did, in fact, write another longer ending that has just gotten lost along the way. The manuscript would be damaged or something. So others just tried to fill in what was lost with parts of Matthew, parts of Luke, and parts from some other source. Nevertheless, there is something here in what is called the shorter ending of Mark. So, for example, what do we do with the fact that the women are trembling and bewildered and afraid? To say nothing of the fact that they said nothing to anyone? It doesn't sound like a ringing endorsement of the resurrection, does it? It doesn't sound like obedience to the angel, at least at first. However, the Gospel of Mark is full of places where Jesus tells people not to tell anyone who he is. So silence is a part of the story. And we can't blame the women for being frightened or bewildered. Most of us would have reacted in a similar way. And we know that eventually they did exactly what the angel said. They told the disciples and Peter what they had seen. We find it in other Gospels. And in each one, the news begins with the women who go and tell the disciples. Matthew says it this way in Matthew 28, verse 8. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. But I think there's good reason to stop after Mark 16, 8 and to ponder what's going on and what it might have to teach us. Think about it. The way this version ends would have spoken to Mark's first readers just before or around 70 AD in the same way it could speak to us. Why? Because we, like Mark's first readers, like Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, we do not get to see the risen Jesus either. We only get the promise that he would rise And we get the witnesses of others who did, in fact, encounter the risen Lord Jesus in the flesh. Experiences of the women, as as the shorter ending of Mark has it, is our story, too. And it resonated likely with Mark's first readers who were under persecution and may have been struggling with fear and bewilderment as well. Maybe they, too, didn't feel they could say anything to anyone about their experience of Jesus. Maybe by hearing the words of Mark's gospel read, they know they are not alone. And they know that their fear and even their silence does not change the fact that Christ is risen. risen We have called this series on Mark's gospel, The Way. And the reason we have done this is that the phrase, this phrase, The Way, appears many times in the gospel of Mark. We see it at the very beginning of the book when Mark speaks of John the Baptist coming ahead of Jesus and he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Later in the book, in chapter 8, verse 22, Mark begins an important section of his gospel in the middle there where Jesus is finally revealed to Peter as the Messiah. After healing a blind man, who then becomes a picture, a metaphor for the disciples who are about to have their own spiritual blindness healed, their own eyes opened, and they'll be able to see who Jesus really is, Mark tells us this. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? That word translated as the way is the same word from chapter one, where John is said to be the messenger who prepares the way for Jesus. And from this point on in the middle, um, in in Mark chapter eight, verse 22 on, the the way will refer to the way of suffering and death, the way of discipleship. Jesus is not just teaching the way to heaven. In fact, he doesn't really talk about that all that much, if at all, in Mark. But he is teaching us the way to live in the here and now as a citizen of heaven, we might say. Is Jesus the way to eternal and abundant life in the hereafter? Absolutely. Absolutely. But we dare not forget that Jesus also teaches us how to live life in the here and now. For Jesus, from chapter 8, 22 through chapter 10, 52, the way is about following him through suffering or death. It is, it is about not causing others to stumble in, our sin, in their sin. It is about about faithfulness in marriage. It is about the innocence and humility of children and childlike faith, the importance of caring for the poor, not trusting in our own riches. It is about becoming a servant of all. And Mark bookends these things with two healings of blind men as if to say, look, if you really want to be healed of your spiritual blindness, if you really want to see how best to live your life, you must choose to really see, to really know, and to really follow Jesus who is the revealed Son of God. In fact, at the end of this middle section of Mark, Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. And when he does, Mark tells us in chapter 10, verse 52, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Only, more literally, it should read that he followed Jesus along the way. It's the same Greek word. The way is about the revelation of the Son of God. The way is about following Jesus, denying ourselves, taking up our crosses and being willing to suffer, even die if need be. Speaking of the way, in the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 2, as Saul, later to become the Apostle Paul, as Saul is persecuting the early church, we find out that the earliest Christians were known as the way. It appears that this idea of the way in Mark caught on and became a label by which they were known. Starting next Sunday, we will begin a lengthy look at the book of Acts in the New Testament. And that, that, uh, that look at Acts should take us through most of the summer. And I hope you'll join us for that that journey through the book of Acts, as we allow the lives of these earliest followers of Jesus to shape and inform how we live our lives, how we follow the way today. The way is about knowing God, following Jesus, and pursuing God's purposes in the world, which is our mission statement here at ECC. The way is about engaging in our ECC touchstones of welcome, transformation, and presence, even in a time, perhaps especially at a time, of social distancing. And while coming to know Jesus as Savior and Lord does not, does does indeed lead us into life eternal and life abundant as citizens of the kingdom of God in the hereafter, it is also true that it leads us into a new way of life now, the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, as we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer. And that is all about following Jesus. Following Jesus is good for us, it is good for our neighbors. And wherever you are in your own relationship with Jesus, I hope you will join us in pressing on and following him more faithfully as we look beyond Easter Sunday and let the Easter laugh and the Easter joy take us into the world with the good news of Jesus. As we come to a close, I want to take you back to Friedrich Nietzsche and another one of his quotes, a famous quote. In his book, Beyond Good and Evil, he wrote this, quote, The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction, there thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. Eugene Peterson, author of The Message Paraphrase of the Bible, used part of this quote in the title of his excellent book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Only he used the idea to talk about the Psalms and what it means to live our lives in a long obedience to God, not at all what Nietzsche had in mind for Eugene Peterson, and for us all. If we are going to truly know and follow Jesus, if if we're going to become faithful disciples along the way, it will mean being committed and keeping at it over the long haul. We will stumble. We may fall, sometimes terribly so. But the grace offered to us in the resurrection, the grace and forgiveness, the second chance offered to those first disciples to recommit and to keep at it is also offered to each of us. A long obedience in the same direction does not mean we will never fall or fail or that we will always do it perfectly. It means we always get the chance to return to Galilee. We always get the chance to start over with a clean slate. In the 20th anniversary edition of Peterson's book, he added the following conclusion that I think takes the joke God played on Satan right to Friedrich Nietzsche's front door. It's a lengthy quote. I want to read it for you. I sometimes amuse myself by imagining Friedrich Nietzsche, who announced the death of God and who is now long dead himself, showing up in my study as I'm writing my books. He looks over my bookshelves and sees part of a sentence he wrote as a title on one of my books. He learns that I wrote the book. He beams, although I do have trouble imagining Nietzsche beaming how pleased he is to find that i have kept his wonderful sentence a long obedience in the same direction in circulation into the third christian millennium then he takes a look takes the book off the shelf and looks through it his face furrows into an angry frown the old atheist was convinced that Christians, by promoting the weak and ineffectual Jesus to keep the weakest, spiritually diseased, morally unfit, and inferior parts of the population alive and reproducing were a malign influence on civilization and would, ruin, would be the ruin of us all. He thought he'd delivered a death blow, and now he finds us still at it. I love imagining him standing there, angry and appalled, beard-smoking, astonished that these weak, inadequate, ineffectual, and unfit Christians are still alive and still reproducing. (laughs) If you want to know more about what it means to follow this Jesus, to return to Galilee as those first disciples did, to start over, would you send us an email at ecc at ecclife.net or leave a comment in the section on the right-hand side here on Facebook and let us know. And remember, it all begins with the good news that we celebrate this morning. One more time. Christ is risen. He is risen Would you pray with me? Good and gracious God, we thank you for the gift of your Son, who came and lived as one of us in the flesh, who taught us how to live, who died on the cross and was raised again, that we might find new, eternal, abundant life in him. We thank you for that promise and for that reality. And we pray, O God, this day you would fill us with joy. This day you would draw people to you who have not yet known you or need to return to you and start over. And we pray, Lord, that we would take this joy, this laughter, this great surprise, that we would take it with us into our lives, into our relationships from this day forward. And may you receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.